Kia ora kite whanau. Kau Chatham te maunga. Kau Stour te awa. Kau New Zealand te waka. Nō Ingarangi te iwi. Kau Claire toko hōrangatera. Toku toru tamariki aku. Kau Dom Takutama, ko Abi Rara, ko Zoe Aku Tamahene, ko Julian Aho, Norera, Tenakoto, Tenakoto, Tenatato Kato. Thank you. That's a f you've been subjected to the first time I've ever said my pipiha in public. Uh, my thanks to Sam. Um, I, I am uh, on a journey as far as Torio is concerned and um, I just love the descriptiveness of the, la of the language. Um, Sam gave me that great way to describe uh, my wife, Horangatera, um, uh, which means friendly chief, which is, which is so much nicer than the English, my missus. Um, um, I did point out to Claire that there are times when perhaps the chief bit overrides the friend bit. And she pointed out, that's my fault. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's great to be here this morning and, and to be able to share with you. I really feel God's laid something on my heart, really conscious that time is going to be a pressure. So I just want to pray now and then we'll get right into it. Father, I just thank you so much for your presence amongst us this morning. Father, I thank you that we've been able to sing of all the glories that have come as a result of Calvary, Lord. Thank you so much that we are beneficiaries of all that you've done for us. And we just pray now as we look at your word, Father, would you pour out your grace and your mercy upon us. Father, please help me as I, as I speak. Please help these guys as they uh, attempt to listen and at least decipher what I'm saying. Father, I just pray your Holy Spirit would be upon us and that your, work would, your, your word would work deeply in our hearts, God, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, I want to start. I want to start with this word, forsaken. It's um, it's an ugly word. It's uh, it's a devastating word. Uh, it's a word that conjures up images of damage uh, and hurt uh, and pain. And uh, research would would indicate that there, in reality, for the majority of us, at some time in our lives, we experience some form of forsakenness in our lives. As I've been reflecting on that, I can think of three occasions in my life where I've experienced that sense of being forsaken. I'll share one of them just really quickly with you. I was a, a young teenager. Uh, I'm the elder brother of two. And, um, and we would have a, a pretty fierce rivalry as, as young kids. And as the oldest one, of course, I always wanted to make sure that I, I, I beat my brother. And um, we were having one of those conversations that brothers have where we were saying about how we thought we could, you know, if we got in a fight with certain people at school, we could win. Um, uh, in the part of England I came from uh, at that time, the term you used would be, oh yeah, I can have him. I can have him. And so we were having one of these conversations, didn't really think very much of it. A few days later, I'm at school. Um, I'm with my friends, we're mucking around. We're, there's an upper school and a lower school, and I'm part of the upper school, shouldn't be in the lower school. It's lunchtime, we're in the lower school. Their grounds are more interesting for mucking around and doing what we shouldn't do. Uh, and as we're mucking around behind the sports hall, I hear this shout. 
my name. Todd! No one called you Julian in those days. Todd! And as I turned around, probably the hardest guy in the school walks around the corner with about 30 other people. And immediately I realise my brother has forsaken me and spoken to this individual and said, my brother thinks he can have you. <laughs> so here he comes toward him. My brother has forsaken me. At that point you've got the fight or flight sort of mode, haven't you? Um, and I could have run away. I could have, I could have outrun them, no problem. Um, but to where? That was going to be my problem. My school, where was I going to run to? I didn't run. I looked around to see what my friends were doing. And as I looked around, I saw the last one of them running around the other corner of the sports hall. My friends had forsaken me. And as they approached me, I'm thinking, what am I going to do? This shout goes out and salvation suddenly appears across the field. Our rural science teacher, whose name I can't remember, we just used to call her Yellow Wellies because she always wore yellow gumboots all throughout the year. So, so she said, Oi, what are you not doing? And we were sort of, and she, I mean, it was a rhetorical question. We didn't get a chance to answer. It was like, you shouldn't be here. Get back in the upper school. And that was sort of the end of the conversation. And we're sent off, forsaken again. Three times forsaken. Um, just to finish that story, I didn't see the punch come. My eye was very black. And I did have to check to make sure my socket wasn't broken. And I'm sure at some point I did get my own back on my brother. And I tell that as a light-hearted experience of being forsaken, but actually sometimes it can be far more serious than that. And sometimes it can work deep in our hearts and leave us with deep, deep emotional scars. And if that's true, if that's been our experience of being forsaken, then how do we then approach a scripture like this? Hebrews 13 says, in verse 5 says, For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Other than give you a black eye. What do we do when our experience comes against a scripture like that? Or what do we do when it comes up against Jesus' own words at the end of Matthew, where he says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. If our experience has been one of being forsaken, whether by family or by friends or by others who are supposed to protect us, or perhaps sometimes we even feel like God himself has forsaken us, then how do we approach scripture like this? What's our heart's response to a scripture like this? You see, the danger is, is we, sort of, we just sort of pack them away and we say, well, that's, that's, yeah, that's sort of okay. We, you know, I sort of get it. Or, or perhaps we then engage in theological gymnastics to try and marry up what God says in his word to what actually our experience has been. Or perhaps we look at it and we go, well, this is the Bible, so I really need to believe it. And so it becomes really for us, what I would describe as nothing more than a bumper sticker. You know, it's something that you trot out when you know you need to sort of trot it out. You know, when everything's not going quite right with you in the world, you just sort of, you know, you, you just, oh, I'll just repeat that scripture to myself. I'm trying to convince myself that actually things aren't as bad as perhaps I feel they are. It's, it's what I would call a, a, a bit of a, it's a bit of a bumper sticker. Yeah, you say the words, but actually they're pretty devoid of power. Nothing seems to change. 
It's sort of just knowledge up in our head, but it's not down in our heart. It's a bit like, it's a bit like taking that bumper sticker and sticking it on a truck, an old burnt-out truck, and expecting the truck to run because we stuck the bumper sticker on the front of it. And then we suddenly realise that actually the truck won't run. And of course, over the course of time, and we've gone through this and nothing seems to change, and it just, information just seems to just stay in our head. Our hearts themselves don't change. And we, we run up against the issue time and time again where our experience tells us something different to what the Word of God seems to be telling us. So what do we do? How do we, where do we start? Well, perhaps unsurprisingly on a Sunday morning with somebody preaching, I'm going to suggest you we start back in the Bible. So let's start back there. I'm going to rattle through this because I want you to understand that the Bible clearly indicates to us that actually God has proved time and time again that what he said is true. That will never leave us or forsake us. So very quick, whistle-stop tour through the Bible. Let's start in Genesis 3. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and the woman hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Right from the very beginning, God's intention was he would dwell with his creation. He would dwell with his people. That was his intent. And this bit of the story is where you know, Adam and Eve, they've sinned, Okay, and so now they realise they've sinned and they're hiding away from God. I think it's quite funny that God says, where are you? Because, of course, he knows exactly where they are and he knows exactly what they've done. But he says, where are you? But, but he's seeking them out. He still wants to be close to them. He still wants to be with them. So right at the very beginning, God sets out, God sets out the fact that he wants to be with his people. He wants to stay with them. And you'd think at that point, because sin's come in the world, well, that's sort of it. That's the end of the game. He can't be close to them because of their sin. But actually what happens is, throughout Scripture, you see him keep coming back to them. So Exodus 19, we read this. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood there, stand at the front of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. It's like, you know, God has brought his people out of Egypt, out of slavery. He's finally got them to himself again. And it's like, he can't help himself. He rushes down to the mountain, Daddy's home! And of course it's terrifying for them because here he is in all his glory and they're terrified. But he just can't help himself. Here I am. I just loved it last week when Phil was, uh, Phil was speaking last week and he talked about God so wanted to be amongst his people that he gave them detailed plans about how to build a tent so he could live amongst them. And during the day a cloud would be upon the tent and at night the fire would be there because he wanted to be amongst his people. He wanted to be with them. We read in... 2 Chronicles 7, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple and the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. And when all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, for he is good for his steadfast love 
endures forever. Once again, as they built the temple, God comes down, I'm here, I'm here amongst you, I want to be amongst you, I want to stand with you. And of course, we move into the New Testament, actually we just, we just get an even bigger picture of how much God wants to be with us. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus the Son came upon earth to be amongst his people. And you see his heart again where Jesus himself is speaking in Matthew 23, verse 37. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. God so wanted to be with his people. He so wanted to be with us. Can you hear the heart of the Father in those words? And then as you see the church launched in Acts, you see God comes down by the Holy Spirit and comes and fills and indwells every single one of them. And then finally, the last book of the Bible, where it will all end, says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So right at the beginning he wanted to walk with his people. Right at the very end, for eternity, he's going to walk with his people. And right the way in between, right where we stand right now, God wants to be with us. That's what the Bible tells us. That's what the Bible tells us. But it's not enough for that simply to be in our heads. You can have that in your head and it doesn't affect your reality today because your experience tells you something else. And what we need is for God, by his spirit, to take what we know in our heads and we need to pour it into our hearts so that actually things truly change for us. And I've got a personal testimony um, for that. I said there were three times in my life when I've been forsaken. One I've just told you is quite light-hearted. This one, not so much. When I was three years old, my mum and dad separated. And when I was five years old and I just started school, uh, my dad confided in me that he was leaving, that he, with the woman he was with now, was going to a place called New Zealand on the other side of the world and I would not see him for a very long time. Now, I don't know, as a five-year-old, how I processed that, I can't remember. I have very vivid memories of my childhood, but I, I, I cannot remember how I processed that as a child. My mum has told me, because my dad, my dad shared this with me and then told me I had to keep it a secret. I couldn't tell anybody else in my family. And mum has told me that actually, because I'd started school that time, every single night I'm cr I was crying myself to sleep. Every single night. And um, she would say, what's wrong, what's wrong? She thought it was something wrong with school. Of course, what was, what, was, what was in there was in my heart was the fact that Dad was, Dad was going to, I didn't know where and I wasn't going to see him. Um, I was dealing with the fact that my father was going to forsake me. He was forsaking me. He was going, he was going away. I wouldn't see him again. Uh, I, look, I don't know what happened. When, when I did finally tell Mum, I've got no idea what happened between the two of them. I don't want to know. Um, and so that had a deep impact in my life. But you know, you sort of just get on with life. And I've got to give all praise to my mum. She was awesome. She, well, she is awesome. Awesome mum. She laid her life down for my brother and I. Um, 
she gave us so much. But there were still those odd occasions where you'd be out with friends and their mum and dad were there and their dad would be playing with them and stuff and there'd be that little tinge of, oh, yeah, my dad's gone. And, and then you just get on with life, don't you? You don't think about it too much. And then I became a Christian and Claire and I got married and we've been married for a few years and then as often happens when you've been married for a while, the subject of children came up. <laughs> and... Um, Claire was ready to have children because she'd be a great mum and she has been a great mum and she is a great mum. But all of a sudden, the fact that I'd been forsaken as a five-year-old reared its ugly head. And I had to say, I don't want children. In fact, fact, it forced me to face the fact that I struggled actually to even relate to God as my father. I could take him as king, as Lord, as Christ, but my father couldn't really associate God with that. And... uh, and the thought of me then having children myself, how could I father them? What if I abandon them? What if I forsake them? And I was in turmoil. And I, I just said, oh, I can't have children. And you know, we would meet with friends and we would pray with them and we would try and work through it, but it was all still up here. I understood God was with me and he cared for me, but it was all up here and it wasn't in here because my heart was so callous because what had happened when I was five years old. And you think, oh my goodness, what's going to happen to me? And then... As we're going through this process, our church went to a camp. Um, it's a bit different to the camp we go to. Um, back then, um, New Frontiers had a, a, a Bible camp called Stonely, and I think it was still single week then, so it's 15 to 17,000 people um, camping. Um, and so just if you, if you complain about the toilets at Forest Lakes, just think about that for a minute. Um, <laughs> so we go, we go to this... We go, it's, it's an agricultural showground, so we're in a huge, great barn of a building... And they have carpeted it, but it still stinks of cows because you know, the cows have been in prior to it. So you can smell the cows still, even though it's carpeted, it's hot. And we're there and we're in a worship session and I'm standing there. And I'm singing this song with everybody else. Oh, God, it's so good. I'm singing this song, I'm singing, Over the mountains and the sea Your river runs with love for me and I will open up my heart and let the healer set me free. And I'm singing this song with everybody else. And as I'm singing that song and I'm just lost in worship, I'm just aware of this huge presence beside me. And it's like a, a giant hand sort of reached down for mine. And in that moment, in that moment I was five years old again and I felt God say to me Julian you know don't you I will never leave you I am not going anywhere and in that moment God poured all that knowledge straight into my heart it was like the floodgates opened I started running around like a lunatic (laughs) Okay, I run up to Claire, God's just spoken to me, he's not going to forsake me, he's my father, I'm running up to other people. I think the stewards are like, uh, lunatic in aisle 20, <laughs> keep an eye on him. I just went nuts. I went nuts, and my testimony to today is 24 years later that I have never ever doubted the fact that my father is right beside me wherever I go. Never ever has he left me. Look, there have been dark days in my life. There have been difficult times. It's felt like I've been in a, in a whirlwind. It feels like I've been in a whirlwind in my heart. You know, there have been days when it feels like my faith would almost fail me, but I have never, ever doubted, okay, 
that my father stands right here with me. He never, ever leaves me. He never, ever forsakes me. And perhaps there are people here today, and perhaps that's your experience. Perhaps you understand up here, but it's not really in here because of experiences you've had. Perhaps that's, perhaps that's you today. Perhaps the truth is it's only in your head. Perhaps this is you today. Perhaps you feel like the truck's stuck and it won't go anywhere. You just put the bumper sticker on it. It's something you trot out. But I want to tell you now, he wants to take the words of his truth and he wants to put them in your heart so that you don't look like this anymore, but so that you look like this. <laughs> That's what he wants for you. Because I'll tell you what, it's awesome. It's absolutely awesome that God wants to take that and put it, it, take what's in our head and put it in our heart and change us and make us whole. That's absolutely wonderful, but that is not enough. Okay, it is not enough. And here's why. This is the reason why. This is the reason why it's not enough. Well, Julian, it's a whole lot of numbers. What about it? Let me tell you what these numbers mean. More than 6,000. Today in New Zealand, there are more than 6,000 children in the care of Oranga Tamariki, the Ministry of Children. 6,000 who are officially in care today in New Zealand. Okay, that's, that, that, that number will be much bigger than that because there will be lots of children who are being looked after by family and friends who don't sit in those official statistics. And for those young children already in their lives today, a story has been written over their life, you are forsaken. That's the story that's being written over their lives today. If that wasn't bad enough, 12%, I don't know if you picked up in the news last year, but 12% of children who are in official state care have been abused while in care. So that means now there are at least 700 children who've been forsaken twice. 77,081 is the total number of children and young people with police family violence referrals for the year ended June 2017. 77,000 children who had violence committed against them in just one year in this country. 650, that's the number of domestic violence protection orders applied for in our courts every single month in our nation. And the backlog is huge. And so all the time they're waiting to get to court, the chances are more damage is being done. The story being written over those lives is you are forsaken. 201,804 single parent families in New Zealand and that number is increasing. And look, I was fortunate to have such a wonderful mum and I'm sure that many, many single parent families, are, their, their parents are awesome, but it doesn't uh, take away from the fact that there's still something missing for them. There's still a sense of forsakenness for them. And number one, we like to be number one first, don't we? First. Like to be first? New Zealand likes to be first? Well, unfortunately, we probably don't like to be this first because I'm, I'm sure as you know, we have the highest rate of teenage suicide in the developed world amongst young people. And if you've ever spoken to somebody who's 
try to take their life, and, and I have, if you listen to their story, the story is one of being forsaken. And it's really interesting that um, Stephen Bell, he's director of Youthline in Auckland, in 2016 he said this, suicide is the ultimate way of leaving a community. If you want to turn that round, we've got to make sure that we've got communities that our young people want to be part of and feel safe and secure in. Look, and these are just the headline numbers that I've given you. There are many others we could have considered. We could talk about, what about those who are made redundant? The word over them is forsaken. What about those who are bullied in playgrounds and in workplaces? The word over them is forsaken. The story over them is forsaken. And, and what about loneliness? Loneliness is a growing issue in our society. Um, as the, as particularly as the population ages, loneliness is becoming increasingly um, a problem. Interestingly enough, um, in the UK, they, the UK government have just appointed last year a Minister of Loneliness. I'm not sure what that ministry is supposed to do. Are they supposed to go out and have cups of tea with everybody? I don't know. But, but that's, that's the problem that it is. And if you feel lonely, then you feel forsaken. And all of this adds up to this story. And its title is Forsaken. It's the story of our age. It's the story that the world and the devil wants to speak across our nation and the nations of the world. It's a story that says, you are not worth anything. It's, it's a story that says, no one cares about you. It says, you are not important. It says, you are forsaken. In fact, I would go as far as to say, it's more than just a story, it's a curse. I thought long and hard about it. Do I use that word? It is. It is a curse on people's lives. Look, and I'm so grateful for the likes of Children's Line and, and all the other agencies and stuff that were. I'm, I'm so grateful for our children's ministry. I'm so grateful for people who take up mentoring roles with, with young people. I'm so grateful for all the work they've done. It, even just last year, I was, I was at, a, at the, the Cannons Creek Boxing Academy. Strange place to be, perhaps. But what a wonderful place where they're teaching young people values and they're providing somewhere that's safe for kids to be at night during the week in Porirua. It's, it's, it's great stuff. I'm not, look, I love the fact that they're doing that. But church, if the story that's been written over our communities is that of being forsaken, then surely we as a church have another story to tell in their lives that says that they're not forsaken, that there is a God in heaven who cares and loves for them and who will never leave them and never forsake them. Surely, church, we've got that story that we can share with them. Surely we do. Surely we do. We are called to change the story. God's always about changing the story. Isaiah 54 verse 1, Sing, O barren one, who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud. You have not been in labour. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. God is about changing the story. Our Father is about changing the story. Jesus did it while he was on earth. Think about all the interactions that Jesus had in the Gospels. He kept forever changing the story. Right at the beginning, he's at a wedding feast in Cana. You know, the good wine comes out, then the bad wine comes out, and then the wines run out. This is, this is terrible for the person who's hosting the party. This, you know, they're going to be ostracised as a result of this. What does Jesus do? He changes the story. He changes war into wine. It's the best wine they've ever drunk. He changes the story. 
you know. Tax collectors were regarded as dishonest traitors. Everybody shunned them. They were forsaken by everybody. Jesus sees one in a tree. He says, hey, come down from the tree. We're having a party at your house today. He changes the story of that person's life. Blind beggars were supposed to sit on the side of the road and just receive what they got. They shouldn't expect to live very long in that environment. What does Jesus do? He calls them and says, what would you have me do? And he heals them and they can see again. Lepers should be locked away in their compounds. They shouldn't have touched anybody. They're not, certainly not allowed anywhere near the temple. What does Jesus do? He touches them and he heals them and he says, go to the temple and deliver and, and, and offer up the sacrifice that you're supposed to do. He catches, they bring to him a woman caught in adultery and by God's own word, by God's own word, they should have been able to stone her to death. What does he do? He changes the story. He says, do none of them condemn you? Then neither do I. He changes the story. That's what Jesus does over and over again. The story that we keep coming back to that he told about the prodigal son. The fact that the father runs down the road to greet his son. The fact that he goes outside to see the elder son and implore him to come in. That was sacrilege in their, in their culture. The, the father should never have gone outside. Those, those boys should have come in and begged for mercy. But no, he goes rushing out to meet them, telling the story of what our father is like. He changes the story. That's what our father does. He changes the story. And if our father changes the story, and if our big brother changes the story, then church, our calling is to go out there and change the story. How do we do that? I just want to quickly, how do we, how do we go about doing that? Well, first of all, as a lot of the way John shared today. So we're, as a church, we're, we're out there, we're doing that. We're hot, so that's exactly what we're doing. We're loving people, we're praying for them, we're expecting things to change for them. That's, that's how we go out and tell a different story. You know, that person at wheelchair, you know, it's not, hey, we're not going to leave you there. We want to pray for you. It's about changing the story. So we do it as a church. It's about Alpha. That's why we run Alpha. Because Alpha, as people ask their questions and get those questions answered, they get changed. Their story changes. What else can we do? Because the truth is, you and I have had our story changed. What else can we do when we're not together as the church? Just very quickly, some things that we can do. First of all, we can pray. Listen, if those numbers don't get you to cry out to God for a breakthrough of his power and his kingdom in our community, I don't know what will. Okay, we can pray because prayer changes everything. We can pray about every situation we find ourselves in. We can care. What do I mean by that? Well, let's find time for people. It could be as simple as that. It could be as simple as sitting down and actually truly actively listening to somebody and caring about what they say. It can be simple acts of kindness by buying them a coffee, taking them a meal. Anything like that. Just care. It's as simple as that. We change the story when we care. Stop assuming. Okay, I'm working really hard on myself with this one. Stop assuming that the people that you know have got support networks around them because you'll be surprised to find how many of them don't. So if you're talking to a work colleague and they tell you about some difficulty they're going through, don't assume someone's helping them through it. Take an active interest. Offer to, just say to them, look, if there's anything I can do to help, just ask that question. It changes the story. All of a sudden, somebody cares. All of a sudden, somebody's interested in them. All of a sudden, they're not completely forsaken. Listen. Listen to what God would have you do. John just put out uh, that announcement, you know. Well, if you'd like to be part of HOTS, well, listen to God. Does, does God want you to go out and do that? Does God want you to be part of the Alpha team? Does God want you to go and volunteer for, you know, Youthline? Does God want you to go and 
help young girls at the boxing academy in Polydor? I don't know, but listen, let's listen to God. Let's ask God, God, is there something you want me to do? Let's be open to what he might want to say to us. And the final one, the final one I've called launch. As I was, as I was praying about this, I really felt God lay on my heart that there are people amongst us who God has given you a dream or a vision about making a difference, about changing the story in the community. I believe there are people here who've been given that vision and you've just sort of parked it and you've just sort of said, oh, that's a bit big for me. You've thought, oh, I'm not sure I can, I'm not sure I can do that. Perhaps it's just a, a, a wishful thought on my part. I think God wants to say to you today, no, I put that in you and I want to breathe on it. I believe there are, there, are, there are things to be launched in this place. There are things to be launched from people's hearts. I think God is earnest about this. And, you know, I, I was thinking about, um, thinking about Pete, Pete and Phil, actually, and you know, as often as pastors and elders in the Western Church, um, probably a decent amount of their time is taken up by thinking, well, what can we do to energise the church about this? And what can we do to energise the church about that? And how can we gather people? And, you know, there's probably a lot of thinking goes on like that. Well, what about if God breathed on the ideas that he's putting in you so that actually they have a very different problem? Wouldn't it, I was thinking, wouldn't it be really great this week if their phones kept ringing hot saying, I need to talk to you because I feel God's telling me about X, Y and Z. Wouldn't that be a better problem for them to have than some of the other problems that Western pastors have to put up with all the time? I think that would be awesome. You see, I think God wants to take the truths that we've just seen up here on the screen, he wants to take them, not only put them in our heads, he wants to put them in our hearts and he wants to work them through our hands into the community around us. For God so loved the world that he gave his son, only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's funny that we've, we've sung about Calvary. You know, I write in my notes here, you know, Jesus, the son, was butchered on a cross. And as he hung there, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he died. And hallelujah, he rose again. And he went and sat at the right hand of his father so that the story could be changed forever. So that no one else would ever have to say about God, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That curse was broken. If you're a Christian here this morning, you're story has been changed. If you're not a Christian here this morning, I've got great news for you. Your story can change this morning. And guys, if the story in our lives has been changed, I believe we have a mandate given to us by our Father to go out there and change the story in the communities around us. Can we stand, please, Jack? Sorry, can we... I just want us just to I just want us to draw, draw back to God. I just I want to give an opportunity this morning for anybody who wants to respond to what I've said. Perhaps you're here this morning and you have never given your life to Christ. I want to tell you this morning, He is able and willing and ready to write a different story for your life this morning. It can be yours. Perhaps the, this morning you, uh, you know, you've had, you know that experiences in your life have meant that actually some of this truth is still in your head and it's not in your heart. 
I believe God wants to, by his spirit, come and do a work in your heart this morning, just like he did for me that day in that barn all those years ago. And then finally, there's those of you here who you know in your heart that God has put something in you that you think is bigger than yourself, that would change a community, that would, that would tell a different story. Well, God, I believe God wants to breathe on that today. And so if you're in any one of those categories, as we just worship now, I want to invite you to come down the front. Not because there's anything magical about coming down the front, but I want to, I want to encourage you to do it because I think back to the night before God broke into my life and a dear friend of mine said to me, Julian, if you take one step towards God, you'll take 10 steps towards you. And that was true. So I want to encourage you this morning, if you're any one of those three, if you've never known Christ, if you know that there's stuff in your head but it's not in your heart, or if you know that God has put something in your heart in terms of doing something out there in the community, then I want you to just, as we worship, just come forward because we want to pray for you. Thanks, Jim.